perhaps some of these symbolic moves, apologies, and so on carry less weight in the stoic picture. But again, it, it almost doesn't matter. You know, what are you called to do? Show justice and compassion. The stoic uh, yeah. picture is as that almost comforting simplicity in that sense, even if it's a demanding one. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about forgiveness, forgiveness from the Stoic context or from the Stoic perspective. Michael and I will be talking about it. Uh, I did have a recent episode with Jeremy Reed, uh, and that focused on Stoic forgiveness. He has a new paper on that, as well as anger, which he takes correctly, I think. The Stoic account of anger to be central to how they think about forgiveness as well. But I thought it'd be good to chat with Michael about it some, go over some of the things we didn't get a chance to cover with Jeremy, just because it is such a huge topic. How do you think about forgiveness from the Stoic lens? And then contrast that with, with some other accounts as well. Yeah, sounds great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so I think in this, in this conversation, we'll, I'll, I'll start by giving the standard account of forgiveness, or I think how many people tend to think about it, and then we'll rehash the Stoic account, um, and then talk about this issue, some some of these issues that come up with forgiveness. So one, one issue is clemency, that's sort of like, how do you actually respond to wrongdoing? And then some of the other practical and theoretical challenges uh, one faces. So just diving right into it then, when people typically think of forgiveness, I th think they're bringing to mind something that meets the following criteria. It's a response to wrongdoing. It doesn't make sense to forgive someone if they haven't done anything wrong. That would be a bit presumptuous, I think. So part of that is recognizing that the other did wrong. They made a mistake. And when you forgive someone, you're not condoning. You're not saying... Uh, that it was not, in fact, a mistake. In fact, you're, you're, you are recognizing that wrong was done somehow. Then it also involves this idea of showing mercy, perhaps not punishing to the degree warranted or required by justice. And that is related to this other trait of reconciliation. So you have recognizing the other did wrong, showing mercy, and reconciliation that's uh, bringing the relevant parties together. The last feature you might add to this, this definition may be that it must come, forgiveness must come from the appropriate person. You can't forgive someone for doing wrong to someone else. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. So putting those all together, you have that recognition, mercy, reconciliation, and, and it comes from the appropriate person. You can think about this I think in a, there's a, an intuitive way where if we connect it to our episode on punishment, episode 89, where a common view of punishment is it sort of restores the balance between the victim and the wrongdoer. You know, an eye for an eye, that's one way to restore moral order, as it were. But another way to restore balance is through forgiveness, is by recognizing the wrong was done, showing mercy, and then reconciling with the wrongdoer. This account, this sort of has some initial puzzles, you know, like, so the main one just being this tension between justice 
and mercy. You know, if you're forgiving someone, there's this worry that you're ignoring what's maybe required or at least permitted by justice. So I think that's a, that's a common tension that many people have, both I think in the personal case and as well as the, the philosophical one. Any thoughts on that, uh, that way of hashing out how people tend to think about forgiveness? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So the, there's this idea of like, so, I mean, I think this episode might work better if we can think of an example and kind of ground it in an example. Well, somebody's, so somebody's just poked out your eye, right? <laughs> Somebody has taken your eye and your, your, I don't know if we want to stick with that one, but your, your, by kind of the laws of justice or at least colloquial understanding, you're allowed to get some sort of revenge or punishment to, to correct for that. And maybe that's to poke out their eye, but maybe it's, they go to jail or maybe that's, um, you know, you punch them in the face or something. There's some sort of way to restore balance. And then forgiveness is a kind of, it's a, it's a gift in a way. It's to say, look, I'm going to show mercy. And instead of enacting that revenge, I'm going to, uh, not do that. I'm going to give you forgiveness instead. What's interesting in this account of forgiveness, I guess, as you talked about that, that, um, those problems is why it's seen as a virtue then. Because it would seem like, well, if, if virtue or you know, if justice desires or demands a punishment, uh, then you're being unjust by not acting out that punishment. And you can say, well, it's because you know they wronged me, so I'm forgiving them. But then it seems that you're treating yourself unjustly. And that's the thing that I was thinking about was like, how do you draw the line? You know, we just had an episode on um, healthy boundaries and how uh, you know, how a Stoic would stand up for themselves in a healthy way. And how do you, you can think of somebody who's always forgiving and the person who's always forgiving just seems to be a pushover, seems to be somebody who's being unjust towards themselves mm -hmm. in a way where someone who's never angry, maybe because I'm a Stoic, so I'm biased. I don't think there's something wrong with somebody who's never angry uh, or someone who's always kind, but someone who's always forgiving seems to, again, as you said, ignore justice or actually act against justice. And that's a little weird. Um, I was thinking about how I, I, I read this paper once or um, about it was a contemporary account of forgiveness. And they were talking about how forgiveness has to be uh, almost spontaneous. I would say almost like non rational or non reasoned choice. Whereas if you're reasoning it where you're saying, well, um, you know, they stole a hundred dollars from me and then they, they gave me back 200 while I forgive them. But then you're, you're, you're almost not, you're not forgiving them in that case because it's kind of a, and I think that connects back to that justice idea where mm -hmm. you're saying, well, you know, justice has been met. So I'm actually not holding a grudge against you anymore, or I'm not unjustly staying angry at you. And the point is like, that's not forgiveness. When somebody makes up for it, it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be when they haven't made up for it. And then that's when we get that tension with with justice. And their view is that, you know, it has to be almost the spontaneous thing that you arrive at, almost like a creative act, not a, not a reasoned one. That tension, I mean, you hit it perfectly. Justice, seem, uh, justice seems good. Forgiveness seems good. Forgiveness seems to entail ignoring justice. Um, that's pretty confusing. Yeah, I think you see it. Maybe if you want to think of some different... Some modern examples we could point to are 
large scale reconciliation with racial injustice and you always have say divisions in uh if you think about south africa uh where nelson mandela takes a much more reconciliation related approach and of course you have many who are fellow members of his political party the anc who are not exactly happy with that they think now that you know apartheid is done to forgive others in the way that nelson mandela proclaimed others were forgive to seek a message of unity is in a real sense unjust given all the uh, apartheid so that's that's the way in which it might come into a political discussion and you can you can see how that at least at least i think initially that's that's going to be a persuasive case right at least you can see why someone would understandably think that you know sometimes sometimes it's better to pursue justice than than this message of message of mercy mm-hmm. We might get to that a little bit as as well when you talk about clemency. So when Seneca talks about clemency, he's talking about the art of knowing what approaches are most beneficial to both sort of restore social order, I suppose, but also transform an individual so they can behave better. And to grant clemency is to pardon someone for some act they committed. And, but you wouldn't want to do that to, in every case, that would be anarchy. So you can see that mm-hmm. sort of, if you, if you define that, you can think of clemency almost in an, in an Aristotelian sense where clemency is that mean between being too harsh, pardoning no one, and also the extreme of being too lax. And you can see this in parenting as well. I think parenting is an explicit example that, that Seneca makes that you might return to as well but you don't want to be too harsh you want to communicate what uh, is right what you believe at the same time you don't want to in many cases let people let children run around willy-nilly especially when they've done something that's uh, seriously wrong even if they didn't know any better yeah i guess that's my like maybe maybe we'll get into this in this view of clemency because i was thinking about this idea of um you know, if forgiveness is to show mercy, it's to um, recognize that somebody recognizes that the other person's done wrong, but not requiring the punishment from them, then it's like, can it ever be justified to forgive somebody? Basically, what I want to call out, you've presented this philosophical account of forgiveness, but I don't think it matches on to how people use the word today. What I think people use the word today is they mean I'm not mad at you anymore, which is this, which can map onto this example of, you know, you hurt my feelings, but then you apologized and you got me a gift. So now I forgive you. But that's not forgiveness in the account that you gave, because this is something where, well, things are actually corrected. Justice has been served and I'm now not holding the grudge anymore. And I guess I almost want like a different term for that. So there's like, there is, um, there is being kind of a pushover and not holding grudges or not demanding justice when you deserve justice. Then there's, I think, the virtue of not continuing to hold a grudge after justice has been met, right? Well, this person played, did their time. You know, they committed a crime on me, they went to jail for three years, and now, now we're okay because they, they paid their dues. 
Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be forgiveness either on the account that, that you're providing. Although I do think we, we use it that way today. You know, it's almost like, a, again, not holding a grudgeness. Yeah, yeah. I do think there, that's interesting because I do think there's a sense in which if someone does something wrong to you and then they pay the cost and it's a just cost and you say afterwards you're forgiven, then, I mean, that might be a legitimate message to express in the sense that, you know, we're reconciled now. But I would, there, I would think, at, at least in the way that some people might use the word, they're not actually doing performing the act of forgiveness in that case because they've served their time, as it were. You're just kind of saying we're good. You're communicating yeah, yeah. a kind of a... And, and maybe you can... Yeah, yeah right. and maybe you can see that in the case where someone refuses to forgive the other person and it seems in, almost inappropriate in the case where they've actually served their time. Uh, yeah. Whereas in legitimate cases of forgiveness, I think you're almost you're almost shocked. You're like, well, the person could have been much uh, more aggressive on how they responded to that wrongdoing. Yeah. They would have been in their rights to advocate for a serious response, but they didn't. Yeah, and in terms of the like, in terms of that use as well, there's also something to be said for the pushover example or whatever we want to call it. Where if you did something awful and you're like, I'm sorry, and somebody's like, well, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. That almost, as you said, doesn't feel, you're not hit with that experience of, wow, that's a really profound gift of forgiveness. You feel like, oh, that person's not really, not really getting it, (laughs) you know, not really, not really understanding uh, how much they were wronged or really uh, under holding their own space in that. So yeah, I think if you think of that paradigmatic case where people were like, wow, you didn't have to do that. That was incredibly generous. That's from somebody who recognizes the wrong and is giving this gift without before the person has earned it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. absolutely. Well, that's the, uh, that's one, at least a standard philosophical account. I think you're right to point out that people, we use the word in different ways. And I think once you look at it closely, it, there's a sense in which it becomes rather confusing. And that's part of the reason probably why there are many debates around forgiving whether someone be, should be forgiven or not, uh, because people have different different accounts of what the criteria are for forgiveness, what yeah. it amounts to. Just as you see, sort of related debates, I think around apologies and you know what does a good apology look like. Uh, yeah, is a, is another matter and maybe another good one to tackle at some point too. One one nuance I wanted to add to this, just because it's an interesting topic. Before we jump into the Stoke account, is you could almost have forgiveness to different people because you said someone else can't forgive you. But let's say somebody murders someone or does a, you know, let's say they, they murder a family member. They are, there's almost like a harm done to society. And then society almost forgives you once you've paid your time. And like you should, okay, well, they murdered somebody, but they've been in jail for 20 years and they've, but then there's this, so there's this question of like the harm to society or that breaking of the social contract, but then there's that harm to the individual or the family. And you could almost say like, cause, cause basically the point is like harms don't always harm one person. They harm many people in, in different severities. Mm-hmm. And you could have something where you could, you could live up to the justice to the people that were harmed less, but maybe not have done your, your due to the people that were harmed more. And so you could rightly have some people forgive you while rightly not, uh, or, or 
you know, some people think justice has been met while other people are not and are still holding out for that justice. Right, right. Yep. Well, all right. So, so those are some of the tensions with for, uh, thinking about forgiveness, especially around that division of justice and mercy. And I think what's unique about the Stoic account is that on the Stoic account of forgiveness, there is no tension between justice and mercy. What you ought to do for the Stoics is do the just thing, grant clemency when that's required by justice, you know, pardon people when that's required by justice, uh, or dispense with punishment, whatever that looks like uh, when that's required. And I think that that has led some people to argue that even this notion of forgiveness doesn't make sense uh, in Stoicism. But if you listen to the episode with, with Jeremy, uh, you know that that's not a, the position that he takes. And I think we can say there there is a, at least a legitimate sense in which we can talk about forgiveness in Stoicism, and especially this idea that Seneca has that we must forgive everyone at once. So the first pass, you know, I think the account solves this initial ten tension by saying there's no no tension between justice and mercy. You just ought to do the right thing for the right reason at the right time, and that's that's what you should be focused on. But it, it does turn out to be uh, rather rather radical. So I suppose to to explain it more, if you think about uh, wrongdoing, that's fundamentally what we're thinking about forgiveness as. It's a response to wrongdoing, and there's a question, what's an appropriate emotion? For the Stoics, they hold that anger is never appropriate. To, so to the extent that we can, we should diminish our anger or not be angry at all. And then when you think about forgiveness, it's a matter of knowing that someone else made a mistake knowing that mistakes in general are expected and then shifting the focus to knowing how to respond appropriately. So what that might look like is you have that famous passage from Marcus Aurelius in Meditations 2 where he reminds himself that he's going to meet with, you know, he says every morning, remind yourself that you're going to meet with the ungrateful, the busybody, the envious, uh, and the unsocial. And there he's setting that expectation that you will meet others who do wrong. In fact, they will likely do wrong to you. And of course, as that passage continues, not out of some essential malice in their character, but out of ignorance because they do not know the nature of good and evil. You have that, that expectation. So there's no, there's no surprise when others do wrong, or at least there's less surprise when others do wrong. And once you have, once you have that expectation in place, then it's easier to know how to respond. One example we've mentioned before is this example from Marcus Aurelius's uh, life, where one of his generals, Avidius Cassius, plans a coup. And Marcus Aurelius's immediate response to this is to both issue 
a pardon to Avidius Cassius that's conditional on him immediately standing down. And he was able to do that in a relatively persuasive way because Avidius Cassius had, I believe, heard mistaken idea, mistaken information that Marcus Aurelius had died or something like this. Uh, so he could say, look, you're, and so there's some story there, you know, hmm. Avidius Cassius, I could trust uh, Marcus Aurelius's word when he said, you know, you'll be pardoned as soon as you stand down. Uh, but he also knew that he needed to respond appropriately and prepared for war, if, that, if that's what it came to. Yeah, let me try to summarize what I'm taking from this. So there's the view that forgiveness is showing mercy where punishment is deserved in a, in a, in a contemporary, con in a non-Stoic context. And the Stoic points out, hey, well, <laughs> if punishment is deserved, give the punishment. If punishment is not deserved, because, uh, you know, like the Marcus Aurelius example, you haven't thought of, you haven't, you're just getting overly angry because you haven't thought about how some people are ungrateful or ignorant or things like this, then don't be angry. Don't pursue punishment. So it's that, it's that kind of, it's that very, there's no mercy in, in, in substitution for punishment because if, if it's deserved, you give it. And if it's not deserved, then you interrogate these reasons for anger. Sorry. Um, which to me is compelling. I think the I think the general example is compelling. The one of to say, well, look, I will, I will forgive this. Um, I'll forgive this discretion, because that's that's what's deserved in this moment. But I'm also not going to be a pushover, and I will prepare appropriately, um, if needed. Am I getting Am I getting that right? Is that the kind of thing? Is that is that the right picture? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think you don't need to be a stoic per se to object to the account of forgiveness i gave earlier but i do think that's that's uh mm -hmm. a key a key key aspect what of one it. one thing for me to push back on here is this idea of like in the stoic picture and i'm curious if you agree Kale, forgiveness is actually not a virtue so i was thinking about this kind of hierarchy of of actions and so there's certain things that are required of us and then certain things that are exceptional for us to do like you can think of this in terms of charity you know, maybe it's required of me to not go around assaulting people and bullying people, but it's exceptional of me to give away my money to charity. And nobody's going to judge me if I don't give away my money. And we typically view forgiveness like that, which is like, I don't expect you to forgive them, but if you did, it would be really, really nice of you. Mm -hmm. That's in the kind of non-Stoic sense. But in the Stoic sense, in this picture, if I'm understanding correctly, then um, not having forgiven a person does for, sorry forgiveness doesn't become the exceptional thing to do it becomes the baseline and not forgiving the person doesn't become reasonable it becomes unreasonable and so it actually kind of shifts everything a level down um and so the people who are like i'm not going to forgive they go from being not giving the charity to actually being ignorant or bad or uh, you know incorrect right yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's right. One way to think about this is you have the virtue of justice. There are many different aspects to justice, treating others well. And that's going to break down into other traits like compassion, showing others compassion, being a compassionate person, knowing what approaches would be most beneficial for wrongdoing. 
And I think instead of the, I think the stoic when they're faced with wrongdoing is going to think about like, what's the most compassionate response, most just response, uh, where I can show the skill of clemency or, or, or not, if, if it's appropriate to, to do, to do so instead of thinking about, well, I can forgive them and that'd be very nice of me, but I'm not required to. That's not, that's just, that's not exactly the stoic frame. It's exactly, I think exactly as you said that the stoic is required to almost expect this kinds of wrongdoing, not respond with anger, but use this, you know, it's these ideas we have around forgiveness to motivate justice uh, and compassion, really treating others well. And depending on the context, that might look like the forgiving response and other contexts it might result in a, a different one. So it's a high, it's a high bar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a high bar. So it says, um, ne- oh, nearly always a high <laughs> bar. Hey, this is, this is tough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of that one interesting argument that Jeremy t- talked about that I think is worth re noting from, from him that he pulls from Seneca's this idea that we must forgive everyone at once. And I think this is such a, compelling and challenging thought and worth discussing too just because it does help us understand this 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 stoic idea of forgiveness two different things i suppose you know like why would you forgive every everyone at once first because you should expect wrongdoing it's just expected as a matter of human nature because of our histories, societies, biology, people are going to act poorly. We ourselves are going to make mistakes. And when, by saying we, we ought to forgive everyone at once, Seneca is urging us to see reality, you know, as, as it is, we're uh, imperfect, imperfect beings. And then this, this other as- important aspect is our job is always to respond with justice and compassion when that wrongdoing emerges that act that line of forgiving everyone at once is symbolic of expecting wrongdoing reminding yourself to always greet whatever moment uh, with that uh, aim to be just be compassionate be virtuous yeah i think that um we 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 both read um, Jeremy's new chapter before this conversation, and he has this really beautiful part where he talks about how um, you know you're not wrong when you look at somebody else's life and you are like, oh, that's not you shouldn't hold that grudge or you know you should you should let that go. You're not wrong when you say that. It just and then we don't feel that way about our own lives. And there's two ways of looking at it: is that like, well, we're uncaring about other people, we're unempathetic at other people. The point is that no, actually, the distance allows us to get the correct perspective, the the objective perspective in that other situation. Whereas our subjectivity, our um, I don't know, our, our our myopic view on ourselves pulls us into that. And so, the forgiving that you can forgive everyone at once, the way you could forgive somebody that lived in Athens, right? The way you could forgive somebody who lived. That's one thing I think. Like you forgive somebody who lives in Athens, you go, well, they're a product of their time, right? Like they. They acted, giving the information that they had to the best of their ability. And it's really easy to kind of see that causality uh, when you're thinking about somebody who lived 
for uh, you know, 2000 years ago or somebody who lived in a culture less familiar to ourselves, we say, well, of course they thought that way. That was how they were raised or what they knew. Um, so they responded to it. And so to, to almost assume that perspective throughout time and then throughout the people in the present now uh, is challenging. But I think that connects with what Seneca is saying there about forgiving everybody at once. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, it's good to note how we often recognize that others' responses done out of anger are often inappropriate. Um, and there's sort of two, two, two lines to that. There's one, we, we can use that same objective distance, that third person perspective to our own responses. And that's, that's a useful thing to do. And, but there's also the thought that if you're notice responding with anger or disappointment at other people's anger, then you just haven't stepped back far enough. You haven't truly forgiven. Mm-hmm. everyone at once because you should recognize that that too is just a product of their history our society and the fact that we're you know imperfect imperfect human beings all right so that yeah that's that's a stoic view on forgiveness the thought is first you know anger is not an appropriate response to wrongdoing and to think of forgiveness as a matter of knowing that others do wrong, it's expected, and that our focus is knowing how to respond appropriately with the virtues of justice, compassion, and of course the the other cardinal virtues as well. So that 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 you can think of forgiveness. It's closely related to clemency, this skill of knowing when a gentle approach is beneficial. So as I as I said earlier, you can almost think of you can you can think of clemency as that perfect mean between harshness in responses and also laxity being far too lax or pardoning far too often uh jeremy describes describes it as follows he has a nice nice definition clemency is a relevant virtue for identifying those circumstances in which a more gentle approach would be beneficial and for judging what the best course of action is going forward. The clement king is like a forgiving judge. A forgiving judge will need to give out harsher penalties on particular occasions, but they are rightly said to be forgiving insofar as they are disposed to give lighter penalties and benefit others in doing so. And it's especially this, this last, these last two ideas of you know, the gentle penalties as a judge and not doing them for the sake of anything other than thinking about the social good, social benefits. So that's that's the account of clemency. Uh, did you did you want to say something quickly? Or yeah, I mean, I want to jump into some etymologies here, which is <laughs> I want to pull us down into the weed. Um, well, because we don't we don't talk about clemency really. You know, if I if I <laughs> you know if I did something to my sister and I was like, please clemency, <laughs> there would be no. I don't think she would understand what I like. You know, what are you talking about? I'm gonna like, I'm gonna get back at you more, uh, just for using those silly words. But so I'm gonna get forgiveness. Forgiveness means, I mean, etymologically comes from Old English, which is to like completely give. So it's this. It's almost means to pardon, or it's that idea of mercy of like 
I had the ability to punish you. I was in justice. I was justified in punishing you. And I'm giving up that authority to do that. And that's that kind of that, that, that actual avoidance of your authority position. You're stepping out like, a, like the judge who says, I'm not actually going to judge here. I, I have the robes. I could judge, but I'm not going to. And then clemency, uh, I looked up, comes from the Latin for being mild. But it means, so it means the mildness or gentleness shown in the exercise of authority. So it means you, you still judge, but you do so, I mean, as you were saying with your example, in a mild, compassionate, plugged-in way, a way that is sensitive to the fact that there's another human here, that, you, that, that you're understanding, well, do they need, an, uh, do they need a, a lesson? Do they need to be punished harshly because they're quite, this is not their first offense? These kinds of questions. So I, I love that idea of like, well, it's exercising power kindly as opposed to giving up your power. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is a pretty profound, uh, profound shift. I've never really thought of clemency before. Yeah, there are a number of interesting examples of clemency. I suppose it is rooted to this idea of authority, right? Some it's authority figures usually grant granting clemency relates to King Seneca writes uh, de clementia, and that's to Nero advising him how to think about his role as emperor and especially these problems he's going to face of, you know, what do I do with these, these people when they do things I don't want them to do. But there are, I think, some instructive examples from, from Roman history. If we, if we stay, stay in the past, there's, so if you think about uh, Octavian, Octavian later becomes Augustus. He is battling Mark Antony. That's Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And he wins victoriously. He wins and he's, on his way to become the first emperor of Rome, essentially. And there's a famous story where on his way back from victory, he meets you know, a merchant person. He meets a merchant who had trained a parrot to say, you know, hail Octavian or praise Octavian. And of course, everyone's pleased, everyone's laughing. And then some other parrot flies out uh, from behind everyone. And the merchant's like, oh, no, no, it got away. And it starts saying, you know, hail Antony, praise Antony. <laughs> and of course, you know, he was just uh, hedging his bets like uh, any, any wise merchant might do. Uh, and Octavian's response is, is of course, to, to laugh, I think so. And that's uh, really the best thing one can do in that situation. But of course, you can imagine other emperors responding to that as a, as a large personal front or offense. And I think I, one reason I like that story so much is just that you know, all this talk about clemency, punishment, and so on is rather serious. But often, I think you know the right the right response just for many many cases just is to laugh or appreciate the absurd of many of our well, many of our actions. So, so here's a question um, that comes from this example. You you just said clemency has to do with authority, has to do with kings. And, is it easy for Seneca to talk about clemency? Augustus talking about clemency, Nelson Mandela after, um, you know, he's in a position of power talking about clemency. Like what role for there is clemency towards your bully if you're in high school? Is, is it right to talk about it? as Like maybe you have a kind of ethical authority as a human being in this world that has been wronged. You have an ethical authority to be angry, but you don't have any sort of practical authority. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe it's clemency. Clemency. If the teacher says, well, should we expel your bully or just, you know, just uh, give them a bunch of detention? Maybe that you would now have the opportunity for clemency, but it doesn't, it seems to me, maybe you only have forgiveness. You only have mercy if you're, if you're weak. And that's why maybe it's, it's this more of this like um, Christian value. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, that, I think that was a, a classic or almost Nietzschean type critique of some of these elements in Christianity of forgiveness, humility, compassion, is that they're tools of the weak that are only popular because they're things that help the weak survive at best. Uh, so another ancient example, it's an example of how clemency can reveal power at any rate, you know, power is always, always shifting. So Julius Caesar was famous for not assassinating his rivals. When he defeated generals, he would often give them the chance to join his cause, which is relatively rare for that time. He even wanted to pardon the Stoic Cato, who was one of his mortal enemies. And part of that pardoning was, I think, on the positive side, sort of de-escalating a, you know, this cycle of violence that Rome was in at the time, where you had one faction killing another faction, that faction gets in power, and then things shift. And now there are all these debts that need to be repaid uh, in blood. And Caesar wants to end that. But another thing he's doing by communicating this forgiveness is he's saying, I'm powerful enough that I don't need to kill you, you know, come to my side. I don't need to punish you in any way. You're on my side now, essentially. And if he had been better at personal security, he probably would have been able to prove that out during his, during his reign. And maybe I think that example is maybe just useful because it's sort of thinking about how does turning the cheek sometimes, how it does sometimes work and how it does communicate that you don't have the need to seek vengeance because you are resilient enough. And I think it's sometimes even a move that people make when they are in the weaker position. So of course you see it in civil rights, people were exceptionally disciplined in the uh, American civil rights protests around not responding with violence to police brutality and using the fact that they didn't do that, they didn't respond to violence with violence sort of as a tool to convince the rest of the Americans that they were being oppressed, that justice was not met. And I think you also see that in other classic cases uh, in India where many have argued that that can be a very powerful political tool, especially when it's used uh, in a disciplined, disciplined way. So. All, all that all that to say is I think maybe a better way I should have framed it is that sometimes showing clemency is a way to almost gain power by communicating to whoever whoever you're pardoning that you're going to you are in fact in the more powerful position that's a little bit too coarse but I think I think I hope you all I'm trying to understand what I'm trying to say or communicating to observers like going, that going back to the bully example the person who's maybe the person who's weak and does view themselves as a victim, not to say you shouldn't think of yourself as a victim in some sense of bullying, but like, you know, especially in high school, you're not a stoic sage at this point or anything like that. 
but the person who views themselves as a victim maybe cannot give clemency. But the person who says, look, I'm not even going to, not even going to get mad at this. I'm going to kind of, I'm above this. They're establishing their power, demonstrating their power in that situation, or really gaining power in a certain sense by, by, I guess, stepping outside of the game, but stepping not outside of the game or the back and forth or that kind of dynamic by mercy, Mm -hmm. but by almost stepping above it. Yeah. It's almost if, so if you're responding to wrong, as if you're responding to a bully, it's almost if what you ought to do, if you think of like these playground examples, playground scraps is change the frame and there are a variety of different ways to do that you know i've people if they're able to confidently express that this doesn't matter to me this doesn't harm me then that can be i think compelling to the bully who's ever watching and so on in other cases if that's uh, in other cases, I think people just respond by asserting themselves either verbally or sometimes physically, and that works. That works out well too. Um, or I remember a, a goofy story that someone once told me about how someone was trying to fight him on a playground, and he just started making obnoxious dog sounds or something like this, and which, you know, just doing like this, these absurd uh, sounds to throw off. That sort of I think sort of gets to the same idea of trying to break the frame. One way to do it is through acting in an absurd or yeah, mildly yeah. comical matters. So there are different ways to do it. Um, and I think maybe that's uh, that's how you think about standing up to bullies, but, but I don't know. Yeah, interesting. I mean, what do you think about that? Because that's something you probably talk about, or at least people who bring their kids to <laughs> BJJ probably have this in mind. They're like, I want to, you know, train someone so they're physically confident enough on the I mean there's there's this like there's there's this idea in martial arts always and Spider-Man, right? Of with great power comes great responsibility. And so this idea that like it once you gain authority, you have a responsibility, I guess, to be to have clemency. I never thought about it in these terms. But to be mild and gentle in and appropriate in the doling out of that authority. But I, I, I do think what martial arts does differently is it's a it's a it, it, unlike stoicism, it steps outside the world of the souls and the character and says, well, no, the way you gain authority is being cut by becoming the kind of person that could beat other people up, right? You kind of recognize this power dynamic and that's at a very individual level, but you could, you could view it in a macro level, right? Like, you, you know, the, the political leader gets to be forgiving because they have political power. And the first thing you do is you get the power, you dominate this game of possession, material power, and then you then are nice about it once you do it. Uh, but I think that's the difference with martial arts is it says, look, like, yeah, like there is um, there is an internal kind of confidence that needs to be developed. And you get that by having teammates, doing sports, developing a skill, having role models. But there's also just the fact that like, yeah, like you're, you want to be able to actually do the defending and actually have the power and the authority if push comes to shove. And that's a skill that you develop through training, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a useful example because it's almost like instead of thinking about should you, uh, you know, what's the right thing to do in this situation, it's thinking about how do I become the kind of person who yeah, exactly. 
has the physical confidence uh, needed to do the right thing if I need to without also relying on that, without immediately thinking I need to play the physical physical dominance game in the in the playground example. Yeah, and perhaps that's that's one of especially for many of these I think personal cases of thinking about forgiveness. It's almost as if the question is maybe of a lot of these just different circumstances. You know, what's the right thing to do? What's the right action? You can almost make more progress by thinking about well, how do I become the kind of person who immediately responds to people with that intention of showing justice, showing compassion, and then thinking about you know how would that person respond to these different different cases. Yeah, the point there being that it's 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 very easy to think of stoicism in terms of it taking place in a series of moments of like in you receive an impression, what do you do with the impression, and then as if that is stoicism and that that's something that you then pull up in the in the difficult moments, but it's it's not. It's a period of doing that for weeks, months, years before the difficult moment, so that you become the kind of person both internally and externally, insofar as that's up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, prepared to handle those kinds of situations well yeah 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 absolutely that's well put um yeah so there are a number of challenges of course with applying this and i think one of the 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 main ones is just that it is often difficult to know what to do we often need to balance many different factors depending on our roles so an interesting case is i think there's an example from a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things, written by a former CEO, now investor, Ben Horowitz, about a case he uh, had to deal with uh, as a CEO where he realized, I believe one of his salesmen were lying about their figures or just doing something beyond the pale that he couldn't have. So a natural response, I think, of course, would just be to fire that salesman, you can't have salesmen doing that sort of thing. But he thought it was important to communicate this lesson that as an organization, we don't do that at all. And he decided, I I need to fire the salesman and their manager. And you could argue that that is too harsh, right? He legitimately doesn't know whether the manager bears responsibility for that salesman's behavior should the manager have known earlier should they have reported on him sooner than they did he doesn't know there's some chance that the manager should have been fired but there's also some chance he fired someone who for all he knows did their best Mm -hmm. but i think that's an example of plausible to me that he made the right decision i don't know that's why the book's called the hard thing about hard things right uh but um shows how you need to balance these many different factors between ensuring that you know if you're in the business context if you want to run this kind of business that might involve making certain people object lessons of these are our values and we're going to we're going to hold to them even when you know doing so in some circumstances might might hurt so i thought i thought that was an interesting example i'd be curious to get your uh, your reaction about it and the example there is that sometimes clemency is not the most important thing because sometimes, you know, you're, you have obligations to other people or to this business. Is that the? Yeah, yeah. I think I think everyone would agree that you shouldn't pardon the person 
who is lying on their figures. Like that's just not something mm -hmm. you can have going on in a business. And then the question is, how do you deal with people who may or may not have been responsible for this behavior or perhaps should have reported it earlier? And that's where you could have someone respond gently and just leave it at that. Uh, or you could, you know, say, you know, we don't, we really don't do this in this organization. If you have any sense of this at all, you should report it to us. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah. we don't want to work with you anymore. I mean, that seems to me like a consequentialist, like you could say, well, I wasn't very forgiving here because I mean, this would be, I guess, would be a stoic claim. Forgiveness was not the right thing because I had other obligations to other people, for example, like the people in my business. And if there was a 10% chance this was the kind of manager who had liars, that's like not enough of a chance. Uh, a, because there's a message that you're sending and B, because um, there's too much of a risk. But for me, the clemency is the opposite to punishment, right? So it's like, was that a punishment or was that, a business decision based on the message that it sent and the chance that this person wasn't good for the business. This manager was a bad, a very bad manager. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that doesn't really feel like punishment because I don't know how you can give punishment when you're not really sure. But what you can do is you can make a call that like, well, it doesn't matter if it's punishment or not. Um, I'm going to make the call for other reasons. And so that's what it seems like to me. And so clemency, I mean, maybe doesn't even come into the factor because it wasn't really a, uh, you wronged me decision. It was a what's right for the business decision kind of thing. Yeah, there's. I think there's something to that, but I think there's also this point of uncertainty. And I think probably a lot of people face mm -hmm. situations where we just we don't actually know whether someone wronged us or not, okay. or whether you've been so miscommunicated. So I guess I guess there's some of that. But maybe one other point your your I think your comment does bring out that's important is that I think I can imagine someone doing this in a non-stoic way where they think about firing both of these people for purely material reasons because that's what seems easier or something like that. Or now we have a convenient reason to get rid of this manager that I actually didn't like very much anyway. Whereas the stoic approach would be thinking about this from you know what are my responsibilities as CEO to the rest of my employees, my customer, and does that necessitate ensuring that we don't have any of this at all in my company? Um, yeah, I think that idea of uncertainty was interesting too, right? This idea of like, where does clemency and forgiveness come in? If someone's like, well, I wasn't lying to you or I didn't know, I swear. And then you're kind of left in that moment of trusting or not trusting. Mm -hmm. Because that would have been the position that the manager presumably would have said, well, I, I had no idea. And I guess that question of what does trust I mean, what, what, what are the requirements of justice in terms of trusting? Like, what should we do in terms of trusting people? Is it just a consequentialist decision, or should we lean towards trust? That's that's to me the I guess the interpersonal yeah, yeah. dynamic of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you can imagine if we know more about the characters in this story going in a different way or having a different impression. And I think there is also that question of how to think about trust with other people with building that in organizations. And that's a, that's a, a whole other matter. One other challenge I want to mention here, just as we wrap up is in Jeremy's paper, he has this reminder that neither gentle 
or harsh responses to wrongdoing necessitate character change. And what he, what he, so he, he writes, uh, rapid character changes are unlikely. Thus, given that character and habits are formed over long periods of time and are not easily altered, if someone apologizes by saying that they've changed and won't do it again, most of the time, we shouldn't believe them. So there's that, that issue of, of trust again. Right. And I think that reminder that we can also apply to ourselves that building, changing character requires a non-trivial amount of effort over a significant portion of time. And that means we should set our expectations appropriately, going back to meditations too, of course. And that perhaps some of these symbolic moves, apologies, and so on would would carry less weight in in the stoic in the stoic picture. But again, it, it almost doesn't matter. You know, what are you called to do? Show justice and compassion. The stoic uh, yeah. picture is as that almost comforting simplicity in that sense, even if it's a, even if it's a demanding one. Well, I also kind of read that a different way too, which is that you know we talked about this in terms of punishment and in terms of clemency was that you know part of the reason you might punish someone is to improve them and to help them like a kind of uh justice for the sense of um you know helping somebody learn their lesson so to speak and so in a world where change is uncommon or at least quick change is uncommon does that mean we still that's the way my go does that mean we still can justify our clemency in terms of improving other people or do does the demand of justice require harsher punishment than we suspect? I think at least at the very least, we can like lean a bit too much to like, well, you know, they learned their lesson and you can kind of, uh, maybe if you're more of a gentle person, you can not live up to the stoic demand of justice by over over rationalizing how much, uh, these kinds of your forgiveness will change or help. Yeah. It serves as a reminder to check in are you rationalizing yeah you know i suppose well if you're thinking about a harsh response because that is going to transform the other person that'll give them a lesson or alternatively are you thinking about i'm going to respond in a gentle manner because that is what will cause them to change for the better that's sort of that reminder to check in are, is that just a some reason that's serving as a rationalization to punish the person because that you feel vindictive or be lax with the person because you don't uh, want to assert yourself by, by punishing them or you don't, you're ner nervous about doing that. You don't want to look like a vindictive person or what have you. Yeah. I like that as an ending point, just this idea of change is more unusual than we suspect. It's harder to do than we suspect. So if ever you're thinking either in terms of more punishment or less punishment and justifying that in terms of changing somebody, check into if you're not just like kind of post hoc justifying yeah, your initial emotional impression. That's that's just that's that's a good reminder. That's that's yeah, really yeah. my takeaway, along with the idea of clemency. Those are my two definitely my two takeaways. Nice. Excellent. Well, I hope everyone else found this was uh, found this as valuable. If you haven't listened to the Jeremy episode do that as well. And he does have this stoic forgiveness 
paper that the two of us read in preparation for this discussion on his website. That's just Jeremy Reed. If you Google his name, I'm sure you will find it. And then reach out to us, uh, as always, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for additional topics or guests. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. Thanks, Gil. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.